Good morning from Washington, D.C. I'm Paul Kincaid, Director of Congressional Outreach for FMC, the Association of Former Members of Congress. I'd like to welcome all of you to Virtual Roundtable. For those of you who have missed our previous episodes, I'd invite you to visit our archive at usafmc.org sounds, check out our other programs, and subscribe to Virtual Roundtable as a podcast, either on Spotify or Apple. This is an interactive discussion today, so if you have a question at any time, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen, fill out your name and your question, and if we choose you, our moderator will call on you to ask your question over audio only to our panel. Again, anytime during the call today, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom center of your Zoom screen. Today, as more than 185,000 Americans have died from a virus that originated in Wuhan, China, that nation has been utilized over and over again by President Donald Trump as a punching bag and a semi-constant trade hustle. Trump frequently attacked China and its trade with the United States on the campaign trail, and he's followed through as president, placing tariffs on Chinese goods, sanctioning Chinese companies, and attempting to craft a new relationship with the largest nation in the world by decoupling much of America from it. Of course, the United States is hardly China's only trading partner. The European Union imported more goods from China than from any other nation last year and exported the third most EU goods to the Asian country. China's Belt and Road Initiative, a reimagining of the Silk Roads that dominated European Asian trade until the 18th century, plans for Chinese-operated trade terminals in the EU. The relationship is not without strain, of course. Chinese-owned Huawei has essentially been banned from the United States and the UK, but has operated in the EU for 20 years and has built a massive cellular network while attempting to roll out a 5G network. So that's where we find ourselves this morning, with COVID-19 overshadowing most stories in the news, but a constant tension between the United States, our partners in Europe, and China. What will the future hold? What impact will American decoupling have on the EU-Chinese relationship? How are European nations going to deal with an expanding China? And what are the impacts on Europe of the Belt and Road Plan? We've got a great panel to answer those questions today. I know you've read their bios already, so I'll just introduce our moderator for the program. We'll start putting the pieces together. Dr. Charles Bustani served Louisiana in Congress from 2005 to 2017. During his 12 years in Congress, Dr. Bustani served on the Influential House Ways and Means Committee. As a member of that committee, he established himself as an expert and leader on tax, trade, healthcare, and entitlement policies. Bustani was a co-founder of the Friends of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Caucus and the co-chair of the bipartisan U.S.-China Working Group. Now, most importantly, he's president of FMC. Thank you all for your time this morning. Congressman Bustani, the floor is yours. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for the introduction. And on behalf of FMC and our sponsored congressional study groups, I want to thank uh, all and thank all the participants in this important uh, discussion. Uh, but most importantly, I want to thank our panelists for taking time because they all have very, very important schedules. So let me begin by introducing our distinguished panel. Uh, we have Congressman Jeff Fortenberry, a Republican member of Congress from Nebraska, who co-chairs our congressional study group on Europe. Uh, welcome, Jeff. Uh, Rick Larson, Congressman Rick Larson, who is uh, a Democrat from Washington State, who co-chairs the U.S.-China Working Group, of which I'm quite familiar. Rick, welcome. Um, next, we have Ms. Ingrid Ask uh, from the Embassy of Sweden, who is the Deputy Chief of Mission. Uh, Ms. Ask, welcome. Uh, we now, uh, secondly, we have um, Mr. Ricklef Boitin uh, from the Embassy of Germany. Uh, who is uh, Deputy Chief of Mission. And uh, Mr. Boitin, thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, and, and last but certainly not least, uh, Mr. Michael Curtis, who is with the delegation of the EU to the United States, where he serves as Deputy, Deputy Head of the delegation. 
I want to welcome all of you uh, to our uh, this panel discussion. This is a very important discussion to have, and Europe has now declared China to be a strategic competitor. Uh, here in the U.S., talk is rampant about uh, new great power competition. Um, the question remains: What can the U.S. and the European countries do together uh, as we? jointly confront the challenges that, uh, uh, that we're facing. Uh, this is particularly in the economic and technology area, and certainly will spill over into the security area at some point, um, depending on what happens. What we're going to do here, I'm gonna pose questions uh, to the panelists. We'll have a, dis a robust discussion for the first 45 minutes here. And then uh, with the last 10 to 15 minutes or so, uh, we'll then open this uh, discussion to the participants who can then pose their questions on the, uh, uh, by hitting the Q&A box and uh, we'll, we'll take those questions in succession. So let me begin by directing a question, uh, our first question to Representative Larson and Mr. Curtis. And the question is, how can the US and the EU work together to discourage China's unfair economic practices whether, whether it's with regard to meeting its WTO obligations, um, IP protections, subsidies, market access. This is a, a key question, I think, right now, because as many are commenting on the fact that the, uh, the transatlantic relationship seems to be in disrepair, um, and in many ways, there's growing divergence, how can we work together on these issues? So, uh, Representative Larson, and uh, Mr. Curtis, could you, if you might, uh, please address sure. that question? Yeah, Charles, uh, uh, and don't worry about fixing your technology problems, Charles. In the age of COVID, we're all becoming our, our own um, tech departments. Uh, so I think we all, we all get it. We all understand. Like um, a, first off, I'm glad to see you're casual in uh, the usual West Coast uh, form. Hey, man, it, I, am, I am Pacific Northwest casual, folks. That's how it's going to be. I, I don't have to wear the uniform of Congress if I'm not there. So uh, that's, how, that's how I see it. So, <laughs> um, so uh, but thanks for the question and thanks for the opportunity to be on this uh, panel uh, with uh, a lot of folks uh, smarter than me uh, on some of these issues. Um, spend, uh, as Charles knows, spend quite a bit of time on U.S.-China issues, and I want to start there and then, and then lead into the question. Um, so I've, I've written a, a white paper on China and U.S.-China relations, and I think it's, it's long, but I think in, in the conclusion, it's basically the U.S. needs to get its own house in order. Um, so as we're thinking about um, economic competition and economic cooperation, we need to be sure we're doing the right things, investing in infrastructure, investing in job training and retraining, uh, uh, devoting resources to research and development, um, and making sure that the strength of the U.S. economy uh, is on top of our list to act on. That, that's the first thing. The second thing with regards to the U.S. and China is um, uh, and not to disappoint the decouplers listening in on this or watching this, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not for decoupling because I don't think it, it can happen. I think that in certain parts of the economies uh, between US and China, there are possibilities to decouple. I think that's a lot of this is taking place in technology. It's not so much taking place in manufacturing. It's certainly not taking place in agriculture as, as um, we see um, exports uh, and ag uh, increase uh, as a result of the uh, 
a phase one agreement. Um, so I think it's going to be in kind of in, in specific areas and technology is one of them. And then the, the third thing to get to answer your question all sort of leads up to this is, is how do we, um, how do we address where there are problems with the U S China relationship? And I think we, we go out and we find common partners and, and the EU ought to be a partner with the United States in developing WTO cases in developing proposals to reform the WTO and there's legislation in Congress to, uh, to do that. And we can be a stronger partner. I do think we, the US shoots itself in the foot though by um, at times treating the EU um, like sometimes we treat the US-China relationship that the EU is, a, is an economic uh, enemy. Um, and we've seen that through the, through the uh, tariffs debate uh, over the last uh, three and a half years. So I think there need, does need to be a, a change in how we approach our relationship with the EU, recognizing there are trade challenges with the EU as well. I'm not gonna sit here and say that there aren't, uh, but we have a lot more in common uh, with our EU partners uh, than not that uh, can provide a, a, a foundation for action. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Curtis, please, if you may. Please unmute. Good morning, Charles. Good to see you again. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Representative Larson, I don't know if we're smarter than you, but you sure represent one of the most beautiful parts of the US, which my wife and I look forward to returning to as soon as a, the health situation allows. Um, let me thank the FMC for organizing this event and bring this all together uh, and uh, all the attendees as well. And very important topic for us. I mean, China is a major challenge for the EU as well as the US. Um, while there are some differences in our approach uh, towards China, uh, including how to engage, uh, the EU shares the concerns of many in Washington and beyond about the real threat that we both face in China as an unfair economic competitor and a serial user of unfair trade practices. So in this area, I think the EU and the US are very much on the same page when it comes to confronting these challenges. And I think that's important to note amongst uh, some, of, some of the noise out there. I mean, you know, EU and US, we're linked, closely linked economically, through trade, through values. I think we should be able to work together to persuade and pressure China to move to a role which is constructive and not destructive. And honestly, uh, there will be no strategy smarter or better than the two biggest open economies and societies in the world, the EU and the US cooperating on, on these issues. Um, we're strong believers that in, in dealing with China, the key is to maintain a united front, in particular across the Atlantic, we need to keep the pressure up and complement our bilateral efforts to push China to act responsibly. Although the EU, EU and US may have different methods, I think we agree on the assessment that we need to rebalance our relations with China. And an important uh, component of that joint effort, uh, addressing your question more specifically, are the trilateral talks between the EU, US and Japan, uh, which were initiated in 2017. These focus on the uh, core root causes of the current trade tensions, you mentioned some of them earlier in your introduction, subsidies to state-owned enterprises, forced technology transfers, and WTO reform. Uh, the most uh, recent trilateral meeting in Washington on the, uh, on the uh, 14th of January, uh, we agreed to set out concrete proposals for strengthening the WTO disciplines on industrial subsidies, which I think is a very important step uh, towards tackling uh, issues distorting global trade and I think shows also what can be achieved when global partners work together. We will soon start discussing these uh, proposed disciplines with other like-minded WTO members with the end objective of updating the, uh, the global rule rubric. 
So uh, echoing what the, um, uh, the representative uh, Larson said, I think it also shows that the WTO, while not perfect, is absolutely necessary. And the EU and US should work together on reforming it so it can fully and effectively play its role uh, as a world re referee on global trade. Just let me finish uh, by saying that in recent times there's been a, a growing appreciation in Europe that the balance of challenges and opportunities that China presents has shifted, uh, whether it's China being a source of increased tensions in the multilateral system or a lack of a level playing field prevent, preventing EU economic, economic operators from competing with China on, on an equal footing. So on the EU side, you know, we, we've had to review our own policy in response to this, uh, to this uh, challenge while also maintaining our engagement with China on issues such as climate change, for example. Um, this clearly means, uh, you know, uh, updating our own, our own policy toolbox, you know, foreign direct investment or uh, uh, in screening, for example. We're also in uh, investment negotiations with China, which we still hope to, uh, to conclude, uh, conclude this year. So, um, you know, I don't think China should be uh, viewed only as a US only problem. On the contrary, we share uh, the concern of, uh, as I said, of, of many in the US about the real threat we both face in unfair uh, trade practices. So we're very much on the same page when it comes to confronting these, uh, especially in the economic area. Thank you, Mr. Curtis. I'd like to invite uh, our other panelists to weigh in on this as well. Uh, uh, Congressman Fortenberry, uh, Mr. Boitin, Ms. Ask, uh, if you would like to weigh in or want to add to uh, any of the comments. Um, let me just throw one other thing out, and that is, it seems to me that if, if, if the uh, European Union and the US were to put certain legacy issues aside, work through those in a separate basket, and then look at how do we develop our own, uh, develop certain rules to engage China and where we should separate, uh, if we could do this jointly, we would aggregate leverage and be much more effective than if we try to do this separately. And it might also help at least within Europe, where there seems to be some division about within Europe among countries, how to deal with China. So uh, perhaps with that uh, additional uh, caveat, uh, perhaps uh, Jeff, if you want to take that one to start and, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll work through the other panelists as well. Uh, please unmute, Jeff, you're on mute. Thank, thank you very much, Charlie, for hosting today. Good to see you, my friend. Um, I wore a tie for you. Congressman Larson didn't. I did that out of respect for you. Uh, <laughs> should I take it off now so that we can level the playing field? What do you think, Rick? <laughs> well, now that, it is, now that you've established you respect Charles more than I respect Charles, you can take the tie <laughs> off. Now that, now it's time. <laughs> well, uh, good morning, all the panelists, as well as anyone listening. I, I again, appreciate the opportunity and um, the, the work of the organization here uh, to continue important dialogue, thoughtful dialogue on some of the hardest questions. Uh, I want to take a step back, Charlie, for a moment before answering the specific nature of your question, because uh, it's a good one. And I, I agree with the premise. But the, the idea, we're all in one way or another in in government and our vision tends to be short term because we're bound by election cycles and the constraints of, of, of time. But if we project out what does a 21st century architecture look like for international relations, for economic systems, for the world, we've, we've got to do the critical thinking here as to how we basically uphold certain fundamental ideas of human dignity, um, the rights to exercise one's responsible freedom, 
uh, as it manifests itself in rights of conscience, uh, economic uh, pursuits, uh, as well as interactions with neighbors. If we don't do this, uh, the principles of civilization itself are, are going to continue to be hollowed out in the ever expanding pursuit of this sort of mythical idea that our fullness of happiness is going to be found, whether it's in trade or economic largesse. It's a, it's, of course, it's a very important that uh, a healthy prosperity be a, a part of a national strategy in any, any country. Uh, without it, there's a downward spiral. But we're living in this interconnected age um, whereby we're confronting some tectonic plate shifts. And I think this coronavirus pandemic has only brought it out even more. Part of the gift actually might be hidden gift might be that we can interconnect even better. Uh, maybe not down the bayou there, Charlie, with your rural broadband problem, whatever you had earlier. But the idea of interconnectivity is going to only enhance and it, it has huge tectonic implications for the way in which you communicate, potentially trade, and develop mutual understandings. In regard to China, they're, they're, they're zeitgeist, their reason for being, it seems to me, is economic nationalism. I'm not sure they even know where that's going. So it, 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 this machine that constantly has to be fed in terms of the pursuit of enhanced material well-being as it lends itself to military expansion and expansion around the globe in terms of their own way in which they pursue diplomatic relations and the way in which they exploit resources in other countries has got to be front, confronted with a, a unified vision of a values proposition. And I do think that lends itself back to what you were saying, Charlie, whereby in the, the European tradition the, the, and the American tradition flows out of this prospect of this notion of the, the importance of the individual person and their rights and protection, uh, which supersedes this broader idea of the, the notion of the collective as it marches towards some abstract mythical end. And, and that is the underlying tension here that's manifesting itself now in terms of trade um, military tension, uh, social tensions. And um, I'd like us to see, honestly, do a little more reflection on that. We tend to only fix what we can measure. So we got a World Trade Organization problem. We've got a Huawei problem. We've got a, you know, an unfair labor standard problem with the Chinese. It's a, it's a deeper philosophical dynamic that's going on here. But I do think the transatlantic alliance has much to offer in terms of a depth of understanding of the very purpose of an economic system that lends itself toward, again, yes, us combining forces, if you will, to leverage and push back against uh, Chinese exploitation, whether that be of the environment or, or of labor or of the poor worldwide. By the way, I asked Secretary Pompeo, he's before the State and Foreign Operations Committee one day, I said, um, how, how much does China give away in humanitarian assistance? The United States leads the world. It's about 25 billion a year. I've never seen Secretary Pompeo stumped for an answer. And I, I didn't mean it to actually ask for a specific answer. I just wanted a perspective. And he said, I'm not sure. Perhaps it's close to zero. Um, and, and again, that goes to the heart of the matter. You and Europe are doing things all around the world to try to attack structural poverty, as are we, to try to promote the ideal of a, of a human right as it flows forth from human dignity that manifests itself in political systems whereby power is not concentrated and is, in, in, and is given over in orderly secession. And economic systems are lending themselves to the well-being of persons and community, creating options for individuals 
Um, that's who we are. We don't have any discussion about that. And if we're trying to engage China responsibly, uh, in, in, it's got to go beyond this just mere economic question of uh, what kind of trading relationship we're going to have. So that, that's a, a deep consideration. But I do think uh, the United States and Europe in solidarity because of the, the depth and reservoir of our at least our flourishing past philosophical systems have much to offer, by the way, and what the world is wanting. The world is screaming for meaning, and it's not going to be found just through economic transaction. So uh, I'll stop there, Charlie. I know that's a, maybe a little far afield for the discussion today, but I do think it's one of the underlying premises that we just never get to because we're all too busy. Well, I think that's, that's an important unifying premise uh, that we need to, to explore further. Let me go to uh, Ms. Ask next. Um, if, you, if you don't mind, please uh, uh, offer your comments. Sure, and thank you very much, Charles. Thanks to the FMC and the Congressional Study Groups, and uh, uh, I'm happy to see my European colleagues, and of course, uh, perhaps specifically Congressman Larson and Congressman uh, Fortenberry. Uh, delighted to be on the same panel as you. Um, Mr. Fortenberry, we have not given up hope to recruit you to the Swedish caucus in Congress. We are trying hard. We know you have both a Swede borough and a Malmö in your district. Uh, so I might uh, reach out to you afterwards and see if we can take this further. Um, Representative hey, Larson, you you're just, already there. You just, you just achieved your goal. I'll join. Oh, Good. perfect. No, perfect. I'll take that box then. So uh, delighted to also to talk about this topic, of course, uh, which I think I couldn't agree more with uh, what was said initially. I think this will feature extremely high on the transatlantic agenda during the years to come. And that would be regardless of administration, really, uh, after uh, uh, the elections. Uh, it's, it's, well, what we're seeing, I think, is the, the, the greatest global change uh, since the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the rise of China and what it means uh, for us uh, as Europeans uh, and, of course, here in the U.S. as well. And what's so particular about what we're seeing, I think, is the need for a holistic approach, really. Uh, we acknowledge that on the Swedish side. Uh, this, uh, the rise of, of, of well, China and Chinese interests, uh, uh, it has to do with trade, it's security policy, uh, of course, human rights and values that Representative Fortenberry talked about, uh, security, uh, climate, I'd like to mention specifically, innovation research. Uh, I would like to mention that we are one of very few countries that have developed a um, or presented a, a China uh, strategy, a holistic China strategy. I think in Europe it's uh, ourselves and, and the Netherlands. Uh, I'd be happy to share it with you if you wish. It's easy to find on the net. Uh, really trying to address these issues in a holistic uh, way and uh, with the purpose really to develop policy on China to take advantage of our and, and the the EU, because we very much align ourselves here with the EU collective interest, our own interest, it's an interest-based agenda, but also actually to improve our knowledge. Sometimes I think we, 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 we think we know uh, what's happening in China, but there is a lot to, to learn, uh, and we want to uh, improve the knowledge in Sweden of conditions in China. And we presented this last year to Parliament, and we're still working hard on it, and it has yielded quite some interest also outside our, our own country. Uh, I think uh, 
we have everything to gain from, from cooperating uh, the EU and the US. Uh, just taking into account that we together we represent about 50% of the global GDP. I mean, if we speak in unison, they will have to listen. So uh, I, I, this is a message that we always forward as an embassy, and I know the, the, the EU uh, does the same, and this is also reflected in the EU strategy on China that Michael mentioned, um, that um, we, we, we have to work together as much as possible. And when I say this, I'd like to end by actually making a little bit the case of, for multilateralism. Uh, I mean, the multilateral institutions is what we have as a tool. It's not perfect, but it's there. Uh, and we need it particularly uh, for us. It's important to use it when we tackle, for instance, the climate issue where China is a major stakeholder, uh, just as this country and Europe. Uh, we need, need channels, multilateral channels that we have. Um, trade as well, you mentioned the WTO. Uh, it's not perfect by all means, uh, but, and we need reform, but we need to involve China in those efforts. Uh, and we cannot do this unilaterally. So uh, I think this is something that will come back during the discussion, but um, for us, um, the multilateral tool is extremely important when we deal with, with China. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Mr. Poitin, uh, um, with the German presidency of the Council of the European Union, um, I'm sure you have much to say on this, this topic as well. Um, please offer your comments. Well, thank you very much, Charles, first of all, for having me. Uh, thank you to FMC and all of your colleagues putting this together. Uh, thank you to uh, the representatives uh, from Congress on the panel. Uh, great to be with you, and uh, I'm happy to, to see my European colleagues in this format. So thank you all. Um, yes, uh, indeed, this half year, Germany holds the presidency of the Council in the European Union. And of course, uh, China figures high on the agenda in many senses. Um, um, somebody on the panel already hinted at that. There's not always disagreement 100% uh, in the EU on how to deal with uh, China. That is true. But that is true for other issues as well. And the working method of the EU is to come together and work these things out um, and come to agreements that do work. And um, I think um, if you look at the discussion in Europe on China, much as in the US, it has changed decisively and uh, markedly over the last years uh, on how we see China uh, and how we perceive its goals in the world, including the more philosophical uh, issues on society. And, um, and I personally totally agree with what uh, Representative Portberry um, said on that. Um, we, at the same time, uh, and you can see that in the language that the EU uses and the member states use, we see, continue to see China as uh, opportunity as well, still economically in many, in many ways, but not only and not exclusively. So uh, now maybe you can say naivete has been uh, lost over the past years and you can uh, tell from language that governments use and you can tell from language that industry uses. Um, so I think uh, we're very much on the same page with the United States in many ways um, on what we want from China. And um, the, I can only reiterate the calls that have been made on this panel already for working together on this because we're actually in the same boat. We want the same things, uh, level playing field in economic terms, for example, um, uh, stopping of uh, intellectual property transfer that is not legal, 
but at the same time, uh, human rights issues are very much on our common agenda, United States and Europe. Uh, so I am hopeful, really, that we can work this out together uh, in a transatlantic way, because this is really the only way that we muster all the weight that we have uh, to achieve that, what we want. Thank you, Mr. Poitin. I, I want to go to another question now, and I'm going to direct this one to uh, Congressman Larson and Mr. Bertin to start. And it's over the, it's, it, it, it addresses the controversial issue of Huawei and 5G. Obviously, um, uh, there are differences of opinion uh, within the EU about how to deal with this. The U.S. has come down with a very strong position um, uh, with uh, sanctions and so forth, um, and, and basically trying to press the case to shut, shut off Huawei completely. So I want to address Huawei, but also more broadly, the issue of new standards for uh, technology, especially uh, foundational and emerging technology, which is really important. Uh, how can the EU work together in these areas? I mean, is it too late uh, to get to an agreement with Huawei? But, but if, if so, then how do we deal with the next challenge that comes? So uh, Rick, if you could start with that one and, uh, and we'll go to Mr. Boitin and see what the others have to say as well. Sure, I'll just give a very brief uh, statement on, on this in particular. I, I think the U.S., um, we need to continue to communicate our concerns, but also demonstrate our concerns. I think uh, we might be accused of uh, asking people to take our word for it a little too much sometimes uh, on this issue, but uh, there are legitimate concerns that the U.S. has about uh, Huawei technology uh, and, and a few others as well. Uh, so that's, I think the first thing is how we communicate and how we demonstrate those concerns can be important. The second um, is uh, uh, we can't be negotiating something with nothing and uh, ensuring, they're, they're all, they're ensuring that there are alternatives. Um, in fact, maybe making Huawei the alternative and these others the standard is the way to think about it. Um, uh, so and there are companies that also, you know, are providing 5G. The, th the third thing I would note, and this gets to your broader point, I really enjoy hearing the EU's perspective on this, is the U.S. role in standard setting bodies where we, uh, I think, have been um, uh, late to the game on this. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily this administration's uh, um, fault. I, this is probably something that's been built up over a, a longer period of time, uh, but th that doesn't matter as much as what do we do now. Um, and I think we need to be more aggressive about being involved in standard setting bodies. There is language in the National Defense Authorization Bill in the House version uh, that was developed that sort of uh, um, gives the United States a little kick in the rear end to uh, be much more active in these standard setting bodies. Uh, and so hopefully we'll see some, uh, the, Senate, the Senate in negotiations with the Senate, they will see the wisdom of the House of Representatives and agree with us we need to do this. And um, hopefully that will give a little more incentive for the United States to be more active. Because uh, it's really foundational. And if it's foundational, that means it's not just something we solve today. It's, we have to make a longer term commitment on it. Mr. Boitin. Well, thank you. Um, I think the uh, 5G question uh, builds on what I, uh, what I said before. I, there are differences in opinion in the European Union and between the EU and the United States on, on a number of issues. 
but on many cases, it's more nuances uh, than fundamental disagreements. And I think that is really true with regard to 5G as well. Um, it's not as if the EU member states are falling apart on this question. I think the concerns that are legitimate, they are there, and they are there in my country as well. And you can, if you follow political discussions in, in the German parliament, for example, um, and in the government, uh, these concerns come to the fore as well. It's not something that is somehow hidden. Um, the question is how to deal with that and how to deal with that on an EU level and then transatlantically. And I, uh, the U European Commission has developed this toolbox of how to, uh, what criteria can be put forward and what, what methods can be used uh, to uh, secure 5G networks for the future. And uh, we as Germany try to work along those lines. Um, I mean, the member states have been exposed, if you will, or, or using Huawei um, technology in very different ways over the, over the past. So I think it's understandable that the views differ a little bit, but I'm, I'm hopeful that we can come to uh, common positions there. Uh, for Germany, I can say we've brought out a catalog of criteria, um, more strict and specific criteria as uh, far as security goes, uh, that these criteria uh, for companies that want to build up 5G networks do not specifically exclude one make uh, or one company. But that, as far as I can tell, is not the case in other European countries either. Uh, but the question is, how do you make your networks as secure as possible uh, to be sh as sure as you can possibly be uh, that uh, things like, uh, well, theft through these ways, spying or whatever is possible uh, does not happen. But I'm, I'm actually not as pessimistic as it sometimes comes out in discussions uh, that, that uh, we can be on the same page here in Europe, but with the U.S. as well. Thank you. Uh, uh, Congressman Fortenberry, do you want to weigh in on this briefly? Uh, you're on mute, Jeff. Okay, thank you. Uh, let me go back to something that Ingrid and Rick said, because I do think it's important as well. The idea of a robust American-U.S. participation in multilateral organizations, um, look, for all of the faults, uh, I have an expression, hold the hand of friendship tighter. Uh, sometimes trying to have a reform agenda is more effective than uh, moving away or rejecting. Uh, sometimes you must reject and move out if the fundamentals are so broken it's not salvageable and try to reform something else. But this is an example. Um, China has ascended to the leadership of the Food and Agriculture Organization. I, I, the Rome-based agency that was founded after World War II to create again some uh, movement of stability for food security in nations, uh, the development of technology, again, attacking the sources of structural poverty, creating the conditions for livability and uh, again, stability for people around the world, uh, using the best of a multinational approach uh, to, to uh, further understand um, how we can keep ourselves fed as an international community in effect. Um, what does China have to do with any of the development of that perspective. And yet they've ascended to the head leadership role of the Food and Agriculture Organization. That was placed in, that mission was placed in Rome for a reason. Uh, at that point in the post-World War II era, the 
uh, there was some consideration that Italy might tip toward a communist worldview and perspective. And so to implant their democratically oriented organizations that, have multi that are pluralistic, multiple levels of participation, would again be a mechanism to assure that this idea of uh, power sharing, not simply a collective and the proper transition of power, the democracy in effect, would be embedded and exercised in an institution like that. Now you had to have it headed by the Chinese, who I, I, I'm just not aware of what they do in terms of agricultural development around the world. I, again, back to the Pompeo point, I, I, my perspective is it's, it's fairly minimal. Uh, so why is that happening? Uh, where did, where did, what happened? Why did we let that go? It seems to me a, a, a peculiar thing that, that has to be fixed. Now, it, it, again, we've been adrift for a number of years in our participation or our demands for reform in a lot of these institutions. But sometimes it's better to, to play an aggressive leadership role to reshape it rather than uh, walk away from it. And then when you do that, it leaves a vacuum for important institutions like that one that will then become led by other persons who are not sharing the fullness of perspective. Um, and their intentions are in question as to why they would want to head that organization. So I, I agree with the prospect uh, of, again, a robust participation uh, in the um, multilateral institutions. Thanks, Jeff. Um, Mr. Curtis, you want to briefly add to this conversation? Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to pick up on a couple of things. I think the, the, the values point is a, is a very valid one uh, that Representative Forthabry made, and it links in with the holistic approach that we need to take. I mean, you can take a, one example, for example, where that, uh, we look at what's happening, the use of by China of artificial intelligence uh, against the Uyghur, uh, which is also linked to the, the values and the human rights uh, discussion. This is an area where I think, you know, deserves, deserves more, more attention on all our behalf. And we see there how the, the issues are linked. Also, I think we need to be um, on the values narrative. We need to be more assertive, pushing back against uh, some of the, uh, the lies being, being peddled by China, especially in the post-COVID world, where they've um, uh, tried to uh, fill a little bit the vacuum and the void left um, in terms of global, global leadership. And I think they're also, you know, uh, the EU, US, EU and US can, uh, can, can do more, more, more together. Um, I mean, uh, uh, Charles, you, you mentioned uh, back, back about, you know, how can we le leverage um, uh, what we do together? Uh, it's, it's a very good point. And I, I think there's also another issue there. I mean, you know, we're, we're about to launch a high level EU US dialogue on China. Uh, the uh, EU high representative, so a little bit our Secretary of State invited Secretary Pompeo in, in, in the summer to do this, and this was accepted. Um, you know, one of the issues we could be discussing is, you know, um, is, is Airbus Boeing, for example, where the US is, is punishing Airbus, we're preparing measures on Boeing. You know, in the meantime, China is fully subsidizing wide-body aircraft, which they're selling everywhere, including to our own private companies. I think, the, the, you know, these are issues where, you know, we can also uh, use the opportunity to try and solve our differences and, and put them aside uh, to, to have this more joined up approach. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Ask, you want to comment on this briefly? No, just to say, I think um, 
on 5G issues, we, we work very much, um, our, our approach is very much like the one that Rick mentioned from the German side. I mean, we want to uh, find ways to uh, secure our systems, uh, but we're not aiming a particular country, actually. We're doing it uh, generally. Uh, we're also sharpening our legislation in this respect. Uh, on the values issues, I really think this is really the core of the issue, to, to find a balance between working with China. We're convinced we have to work with China on a number of issues, but not to give in and, and to continue to be extremely clear on not the least human rights issues. Um, and uh, I think it is possible to find that balance and uh, we're working very hard on that and we're being very vocal on that. Uh, um, we don't only have China strategy, we also, I think together with the US, it's Sweden and the US are the only countries in the world who have an annual or almost annual report about the human rights situation in every country in the world. Uh, and the one about China is actually, the, the Swedish one, which came last year, is, is very explicit uh, on those issues. So we have to strike that balance, uh, not they're equally important. The different Thank you. Aspects. Thanks. Uh, before I go to the next question, I just remind the audience out there, if you have questions for the remaining 15 minutes, 10 minutes of this program, please use the Q&A function to submit your questions and we'll try to get to those. Uh, the next question I, I, I want to bring up, uh, I, I would like to direct this one to uh, Congressman Fortenberry and to Ms. Ask uh, to start with, and that is the question of Hong Kong and the fact that Hong Kong's special status has been revoked uh, by the U.S. and the EU. Uh, following Chinese actions um, uh, that we're all aware of. And is this a lost cause or is there more that we can do together beyond the sanctions that have been imposed so far? Uh, what more can the U.S. and the European Union do uh, in this regard? Um, it gets back to the values question that Jeff raised earlier and that all of you have touched upon. What work can we do uh, with regard to the Hong Kong situation? Because it is going to have long-term implications for values as well as for economics. So, uh, Jeff, if you want to start with that, and then we'll go to Ms. Ask next. Charlie, in this business, as you are quite aware, you always need to have a ready answer. And I don't have a good one for you. I know it's uh, a good question, yeah. It's just, it, it, it's gut-wrenching. Uh, I know some of the people who have been involved in the uh, pro-democracy movement uh, in Hong Kong. In fact, one was arrested six months ago. Uh, there were some attempts by the U.S. Congress to create pressure. He was released. He said to us, I'm 84 years old. I'll die soon. Thanks for getting me out of prison. But does it matter if my people aren't free? And that's almost verbatim what he said. And um, just this is a symptom of this ongoing march of China toward what? What are we, what, what? Just answer the question, what are they trying to do? Obviously consolidate power, consolidate economic power, uh, create a larger zone of intense influence or even uh, rule control um, beyond what we consider their current borders. Um, and yet we sort of, it's a flash in the pan and we are offended for a few minutes and then we sort of move on. But to the degree that this is adding to the stockpile 
of considerations against China, which put more fundamentally, honestly, are raising the risk profile of doing business there. Maybe that in of itself is a punitive mechanism that will perhaps wake up the Chinese. Now, can we do more to increase the risk profile of doing business there because of these flagrant violations of human rights and get moved beyond just sort of an economic transactional relationship? Uh, we have to. But I'm sorry, Charlie, I don't have any more learned answer than that. Thank you, Ms. Ask. Well, no, it's, it's, it's very uh, disheartening what's happening, of course, and, and very concerning um, that this is also happening sort of in the, in the shade of a, a global, global pandemic. We're all busy uh, following that. And, and uh, we have, uh, well, we've expressed great concern both uh, nationally and within the EU about the, the decision to introduce national security legislation in Hong Kong. And we really have to hold China accountable here because it counters their own international commitments. Uh, these are issues that have to be handled uh, in Hong Kong according to their own uh, constitution, Article 23, that prescribes that they are uh, in charge of, of uh, legislation on their own security. And uh, it's, it's very int uh, important that this is being respected. Uh, and we have expressed this to Chinese authorities that we're very glad that the EU has ag agreed on, it's actually not sanctions, but a, a package of measures. Uh, I'm sure Michael can elaborate on this, but uh, uh, of course we're fully behind this as an EU member. Uh, it's a very, um, I think, also holistic package of measures because they include both limiting exports on sensitive equipment for end use in Hong Kong, for instance, it's a, it includes support for civil society, uh, stepping up scholarship possibilities for, for students from Hong Kong. Um, we have committed to observe trials of, of um, uh, pro-democracy activists and so forth. So hopefully through this package of measures, the EU and the European countries can be there and really um, uh, signal our presence so that this is, doesn't continue unnoticed. Uh, I think, you know, I, I run the risk of repeat myself, uh, but we, to the extent possible, we have to continue speaking with one voice uh, when we look at what's happening uh, and to, to, uh, um, to follow it closely and, and perhaps be ready to go beyond statements also. Thank, Thank you. you. We do have a couple of, uh, we've reached uh, 11.47 now, and I don't want to silence the discussion on this topic, but I want to go to some questions from the audience. Um, so Christopher Sedgwick from Tochu has a question about the impact of the upcoming presidential election on these issues. Uh, Christopher, why don't you unmute and go ahead and ask your question. Try to be succinct in asking the question. Yes, hi, thanks very much. And thanks to everyone for taking their time. Uh, we just had a quick question uh, uh, for the Congressman in particular, since uh, you know, sort of the approach, the multilateral approach to China is at the core of uh, today's discussion. And among many commentators today, we hear that uh, Biden is sort of attempting to offer a more uh, multilateral approach to dealing with China. But aside from tone, as far as the language he uses with regards to allies compared to Trump, do you expect any sort of concrete differences? Like what does it actually look like differently? And how could you imagine a President Biden interacting in a different way with some of the uh, uh, other countries and uh, organizations represented here today? Thank you. Rick, you wanna start with that one? Uh, I don't speak for the Biden campaign, so I certainly uh, won't leap into that. I, I know what I read too. I, I'm busy with my own races to uh, deal with what the president, uh, vice president is, is saying. But 
I have a China white paper. I hope the uh, Biden administration, uh, Biden folks read it. And uh, uh, if they win, I hope they use it. Jeff? Yeah, it's uh, even harder for me to speak to what a Biden <laughs> president <is. laughs> um, Look, if President Trump wins, there will con continue to be this uh, dualistic approach to China. Uh, there's a, obviously there, there a power in the world that is not going away, that's not going to shrink back. Uh, how we responsibly and respectfully deal with that is extremely important, but we're not going to give away the store either. It's finished. The world has awakened to Chinese egregious practices, uh, both in terms of cheating and unfair trade practices, the environmental degradation, uh, persecution of peoples, uh, the lack of the types of governance systems that we would like to see. Uh, it's just no more free pass in terms of business as usual, which has huge implications, I think, for worldwide industry. Again, raising the risk profile of doing business with China. Uh, we're going to return uh, certain types of dynamics of our economic manufacturing here. Uh, Rick brought up a good point, though, that, you know, obviously I'm from a farm state and agriculture is important to us. And China has a certain dependency upon us for ag exports. Maybe that's something to build upon. Uh, but this is, a, this is going to be changing and necessarily so. Thank you, Jeff. I, there's a former member of Congress from Hawaii, Charles DeJue, uh, who has a question about the U.S. and Europe and how we might work together uh, with the Pacific nations to face China. And as we all know, the Pacific nations, uh, especially the smaller ones, are facing sort of a, a dilemma. They depend on uh, the U.S. and Europe to some degree for security, but then, you know, they have extensive ties economically with China. How can, how can we work together to help them? Charles, do you want to uh, unmute and pose your question? Sure, thank you. Uh, thank you, Charlie. Uh, I actually like to hear from the European representatives. I mean, when the EU and also NATO were founded, there weren't really any westernized nations in the Asia Pacific region. Um, with the rise of China, these westernized nations increasingly feel threatened by China. And I'd like to hear their thoughts on expanding the alliance uh, with Europe and the United States and these Asia-Pacific nations, and also any comments or thoughts as to whether or not NATO should expand to envelop countries like Japan and South Korea and Australia and New Zealand. Let's start with Mr. Boitin. Uh... Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for the question. It's a very important one, I think. Um, I think uh, over the years, Europe has said a lot of times that we're very interested in working with Asian nations. Um, I'm not sure we've always put that into practice. And we've, I think, heard from Asian partners a lot. Well, you say that, but what, what is your presence here? How do you engage? You're an, uh, an important uh, economic factor, but otherwise, how are you helping? How are you here with us, for us? Um, and I think this con uh, discussion needs to continue in Europe, um, how we work with Asia overall. And this is not uh, a counter China or against China uh, issue, but it's, uh, it's important partners economically, but also in many other ways, societal uh, contacts are close and can, could be closer. Um, and, you know, ASEAN as a structure is, is something that uh, the Europeans cherish. So there's a lot to talk about actually, uh, comprehensive security. And uh, I would like to mention a, a very recent development in my country, uh, which is that uh, the German government just yesterday uh, passed uh, in its cabinet 
an Indo-Pacific strategy, which is the first time that we do this. Um, and it's uh, an attempt at just that, uh, looking at how we can work uh, closer with Asian partners around the Pacific. And uh, I'm happy to share more details uh, to anyone who's interested in the audience uh, after the meeting and um, talk as an embassy about that in DC if there's interest in that. Thank you. Ms. Ann? Well, uh, no, Asia, for, of course, uh, uh, Rick is right. We, Rick Leff is right. We, this, this is, um, Asia can be perceived as very far from Sweden, although we know that um, it actually has implications also for our immediate neighborhood. Uh, this is apart from, um, I could just mention, I mean, we look closely at, for instance, the relation between um, China and Russia, uh, which is extremely interesting. Uh, I think uh, China's ambitious in the Arctic region, which is our immediate neighborhood. They even define themselves as a um, we define ourselves as an Arctic nation and there are observers in the Arctic Council and so forth. So, so there, are, there are really neighborhood issues to be discussed here. But uh, as to uh, Asia, well, perhaps uh, there are issues that we can explore. For instance, uh, I think perhaps we can serve as an, uh, as an inspiration to Asia in some respects. For instance, the, uh, if you look at the OSCE, uh, we're quite uh, focused on the OSCE from the Swedish side uh, at the moment, uh, taking into account our upcoming presidency uh, of the organization. Uh, that kind of, of security arrangement that enables and uh, facilitates dialogue within a very broad range of issues, not the least the value-based issues and human rights issues that we mentioned before, might serve as an inspiration also for, for, um, for uh, our Asian partners. So I'm sure that we can also, apart from the issues we've been talking about here, trade and so forth can also see in, in what structures we might um, be able to ex export actually <laughs> uh, when we talk to Asian partners. Thank you, Ms. Ask. Uh, Mr. Curtis. Thank you. Yeah, there is, um, uh, Rick Leff alluded to, there is a well-established EU-ASEAN uh, dialogue and partnership. Uh, and quite rightly, this is not something which is uh, an anti-China uh, anti front. I mean, we have a uh, dialogue on security, on climate change, human rights values, but it's, uh, it's, it's an important forum. I also, I think, go back to something that Ingrid uh, mentioned earlier, is also the need to uh, discuss these uh, among like-minded in multilateral fora as well, which, which exist already, uh, where, I mean, some, some of the, the challenges we, we have, I mean, are also common. I mean, uh, you know, environmental, uh, climate change, um, uh, this is also, you know, why we also um, have a have a still have a dialogue with uh, with China on, on on these issues. So, you know, there are bilateral issues and there are regional issues and, and, and there are the global issues. And I think uh, we, we we have the uh, the four there, and we have we, we I think we we're developing the instruments to to better address these issues. Thank you. So, one final question um, I want to put out there, and that is, COVID nineteen has clearly uh, brought focus to. The, um, the over-reliance on China uh, in many respects with regard to supply chains, um, especially with PPE and other types of uh, uh, medical supplies and things that are used uh, to treat this. But it's raised a, a, a broader debate worldwide about the, the, the over-reliance upon the Chinese uh, manufacturing uh, side of things with regard to supply chains. And of course, we all know about vulnerabilities within global value chains as well um, with China's integration throughout uh, uh, markets. 
what can we do collectively uh, between the EU and the US to, to create more uh, uh, redundancies, uh, more reliance um, and resilience, I would, uh, is a better term I, su I should uh, use uh, with regard to supply chains and address some of the vulnerabilities in global value chains. This seems to be, to be a really ripe area for the EU uh, and the US to work together. So, um, brief questions, we're running short on time. Jeff, you wanna start with that one? Uh, sure, and um, one of my responsibilities in Congress is uh, the ranking member of the Subcommittee on Agriculture. The reason that's relevant to here on appropriations, the reason it's relative to here is uh, we have authorities over the Food and Drug Administration. Something that we've tried to do, and it was actually in parallel, but independent from what the president's executive order recently did that said essential drugs will be bought in America, uh, is uh, increase the abilities of the Food and Drug Administration's authority to hold drugs that have come into the country at the border if they were not properly inspected. Again, we've got, we, we conduct spot inspections in our drug industry in America, but we have some troubles doing that in China, or I've had in the past. About 80% of drugs and the precursor of drug ingredients come from overseas. I, if I recall correctly, about 40% of that is from China. I think this is one of the first places that this new economic tension and a rethinking of how vulnerable we are in terms of our national healthcare security is going to happen. Now, if a, if a drug or a precursor drug is made in Europe, I think Americans are gonna trust that. Uh, but again, back to the idea of a risk profile going up, the um, microscopic uh, view now of this broader uh, trade and economic difficulty is, I think, going to first land exactly where you said, Charlie, in, in terms of our national health care security. Uh, so there, there might be, again, the advent of uh, creative op options for America and Europe to rethink that and rethink that quickly, because we are vulnerable. Rick? Uh, really, it's really nothing to add uh, from me. The, the supply chain um, issue, the pandemic really exposed the supply chain issue um, on pharmaceuticals here in the United States uh, to a lot of people. I'm sure we, we all knew it. I've read reports going back, you know, 10 years about this. Um, but now sort of uh, everybody knows. And, and it is a, especially for critical pharmaceuticals, it's, it's a... Um, an important issue for us to address, which as Jeff had noted, uh, we are trying to do that in Congress. Thank you, uh, Ms. Ask. Uh, when I think about the Corona crisis, the COVID crisis, I, I'd really like to turn the question around in a way. And, and my reflection is that a crisis like this really needs a global solution. Uh, I think that we should be, we should identify our own interests here, but then uh, our our uh, gut reaction as governments should be to cooperate with others, really other governments and within the the global system that we have for these issues, uh, for our own sake and for those who are more vulnerable than ourselves. Uh, and um, I think. Um, that, that's the most important to, to get out of this crisis and also to handle the aftermath of it uh, when it comes to uh, economic challenges, for instance. And then we're back at the transatlantic relation, of course, uh, which will be paramount uh, uh, as we get out of this economic crisis and how we can work together to, to promote uh, uh, 
uh, good uh, economic development after the corona crisis, but, but global solutions, um, international solutions to this crisis. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Curtis. Yeah, I, I think building on that, history has taught us that we're stronger together and, and friends stand by one another in a crisis. So the transatlantic economy, trade and investment have made a fantastic contribution to our common prosperity and security and pursuing open, fair, rules-based trade together continues to be in our mutual interest. I mean, I think that should, should, should underpin our approach. I mean, specifically, uh, we've noted three important lessons from the COVID crisis that should guide our response going forward. One is, uh, as already been mentioned, the, the importance of affordable and reliable access to healthcare products. Um, tariff, we introduced tariff relief for COVID-19 related products. Uh, it was a key element of our response. And I think it would make sense to explore trade facilitation uh, initiatives in the WTO for medicines, pharmaceuticals, and other health-related issues. I think, you know, it was also been mentioned by Representative Larson, you know, the crisis highlighted vulnerabilities uh, in, in supply chains and the resilience. I think we need to look to how to diversify and solidify these chains in some sectors. Um, and then I think also one issue which hasn't been mentioned is the critical role of the digital economy. Uh, in this time of lockdowns and restrictions, we've come to rely on it more, more than ever. Uh, this, uh, this event being a, one, one example, uh, you know, that, I think that's also highlighted the urgent need for WT rules on, uh, on, on e-commerce as well. So I think these are three areas in which we would look to work uh, with the US uh, and also together with Japan uh, on non-market oriented policies because there's a big China angle here, of course. Thank you. And Mr. Poitin, you get the last word. Thank you so much. Um, much along the lines of what the European colleagues said, um, I think we need a discussion on two things at the same time coming out of this crisis. One is resilience um, and the other is uh, how do we continue to trade freely because really it keeps our markets strong uh, in the US as well as in Europe. So uh, I think we're seeing it happening already, but I think we'll have a much more robust uh, discussion and it's going to be harder to make the case for free trade, but I think uh, the United States and Europe are those entities that should make it uh, because we all benefit from it while not put, pushing resilience questions and, and uh, supply chains uh, questions, especially on medical and digital uh, or technology to, to the side. Well, I, I want to thank you on behalf of FMC for a very robust and thoughtful discussion of this, uh, the importance of the transatlantic relationship. And FMC remains committed to working across the Atlantic uh, to strengthen this relationship uh, with our elected officials, with the embassies here, and, your, and, your, uh, and leaders in your respective countries. So uh, we look forward to continuing this, these conversations and looking uh, for ways to strengthen that, this all-important relationship uh, as we go forward. With that, uh, we've gone a few minutes over the allotted time. Uh, I want to thank you, really thank you uh, for all the time you've given us and for your thoughts on, these, on this very important subject. And with that, we'll conclude our program. Thank you.